The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about Prince. Prince was known as the Purple One and your Royal Badness, and was one of the most talented songwriters, performers, and multi-instrumentalists the world has ever seen. Known for his outrageous sense of fashion, his spine-tingling vocals, and his huge funk, pop, and power ballads. His music and outlook on life, equality, religion, and sex influenced a generation of new talented artists and encouraged them to break barriers and stereotypes. His ability to reinvent himself album to album and decade after decade was incredible, and his ability to remain relevant on the music scene all the way until death depicts just how great the man was. Prince would rise from roughing it as a child to become arguably the most talented multi-instrumentalist and creative genius of the music industry that we have ever seen and will likely ever see. This is the story of Prince. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Prince was born Prince Rogers Nelson on the 7th of June 1958 in Mount Sinai Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Prince was born into a musical family with his mother Maddie Delashaw being a jazz singer and his father John Lewis Nelson, a pianist and songwriter who went by the stage name Prince Rogers and evidently named Prince after his stage name. Before Prince was born, John Lewis Nelson was previously married to a woman named Vivian. The two would have four children together in the 1940s, naming them Sharon, Lorna, Noreen and John Nelson Jr. While their fifth child together, named Wayne, was born in August of 1958, just months after Prince was born, as John had left Vivian for Maddie Delashaw. Prince's mother Maddie was also previously married to a man named Hayward Baker, where the couple had one child together in 1953, naming him Alfred Jackson Baker. Prince's parents would meet finally at the Phyllis Wheatley House that helped provide social services to African Americans. The two bonded here over their love of music and performing. Prince's father performed in a jazz band and recruited Maddie to join the band, called the Prince Rogers Trio, where they quickly became romantic while playing in the band together. John was 40 years of age and Maddie was 23, and the two had been seeing each other since meeting in 1956 before marrying in August of 1957 and moving to Minneapolis from Louisiana to escape the racism against African Americans in the South. Nine months after the wedding, Prince was born. During the day, John would work as a plastic molder at a company called Honeywell Electronics, and Maddie would work as a social worker and be the homemaker. In 1960, when Prince was just two years old, he welcomed his baby sister into the world, who was named Tika Nelson. 
Prince adored his baby sister, and the two would remain very close throughout their childhood, with Tika looking up to him fondly. They lived in a pink-coloured house that included simple and basic furniture, as they didn't have a lot of money and were quite poor. At just the age of two, Prince remembered the household being full of music, and Prince was a happy child, nicknamed Skipper by his mother, where he was famously and hilariously photographed in front of his parents' vehicle, looking quite guilty after he had attempted to write his name Skipper on the car doors in blue ink. Prince would reveal much about his childhood in his personal memoirs for the autobiography titled The Beautiful Ones, as he describes at just the age of three that he was often curious about his father's beautiful and tempting piano and microphone, but his father wouldn't let him touch them and was very particular about keeping them in good working order unless he was present to play with him. He believes hearing the piano was the very first sound that he recalls hearing at the age of three. As Prince revealed these early temptations in his autobiography, as he stated, Here comes Dad. I'm not supposed to touch his piano, but I want to play it so bad. He often speaks about how his father was inspiring, as he could write songs literally in his sleep and then get up at four in the morning and transfer them to the piano. Prince was often intimidated by the brilliance of his father's passion for music and was often bewildered on how he does it. Prince describes his earliest memory as a child was looking into his mother's beautiful eyes and the occasional cheeky wink she would give him that suggested she was about to reveal some secrets to him. Which he describes this as the moment that opened him up to a world of physical imagination and mystery as he is quoted as saying in his autobiography, an entire world of secrets and intrigue, puzzles to solve and good old make-believe, a place where everything for a change goes your way, one could get used to this. He recalls the fond and happy memories of seeing his parents get doled up for a night out on the town, but also enjoyed seeing them go, as this allowed his imagination to run wild and he was free to be creative. He used this time to play dress-ups and enter into fantasy realms, where he pictured himself as a superhero like his favourite superhero Superman, or as the boy that always wins the heart of a girl. As a child, he would rush home to watch Superman on TV as he loved the ability to hide your superpowers and then turn back into a regular person, which he credits to influencing his imagination, which later helped him as a songwriter and as a performer. But he also realised that seeing white people always portray these heroes had a significant impact on his self-worth and image. It was a rough and rocky childhood for Prince, as he was born with epilepsy and would suffer through his early childhood years having regular seizures. He recalls having his first seizure at the age of three when he was happily playing outside admiring the beautiful blue sky. Before he knew it, the once mesmerising clouds began spinning out of control violently. He remembers all of a sudden coming to as he was being carried into the lounge room by his father. Soon after this, he was taken to the hospital for a diagnosis, declaring he is in fact epileptic and his parents were advised that he could potentially have a seizure at any time. Prince had a very overactive and imaginative mind, and he would often experience blackouts. He had a number of seizures before one in particular being a memorable and severe one, as he remembers walking with his mother and Tika on the way to his grandmother's when he slumped onto the curbside and could see Tika and his mother getting further away without them realising what was happening. Eventually his mother realised what was happening and Prince began severely convulsing and had his worst seizure yet. Shortly after this, Prince approached his mother 
and said, I'm not going to be sick anymore. And she said, why? Prince replied, because an angel told me so. After Prince revealed this experience to his mother, he would miraculously never have another seizure again. Prince was a shy and emotional child who was only comfortable around those he knew well. At the age of five, Prince would be exposed to the shining lights of the industry, inspiring him to take an interest in music after his father brought him along to watch him perform at a jazz club. His father was seated at a piano with the light shining down on him as he played. His father was a talented musician, but would always struggle to make it bigger. During the performance, some seductively dressed women make their way onto stage and start dancing around his father. This was a light bulb moment for the young prince and would be one of the moments that shaped everything. His mother was also chasing stardom as a jazz singer and would often be out of the house of a night chasing this dream. She was a very outgoing lady and used her personality and flirtatious behaviour as her act in nightclubs, attempting to get noticed, which wasn't a problem with many men finding her very attractive. Although like Prince's father, their musical careers wouldn't go much further than the club and bar scenes. Also at the age of five, Prince would share his first kiss with a girl named Laura, while the two played a harmless game of happy families. He was stoked to have received three kisses that day from Laura, as he played as the father in the relationship. Prince lived on the north side of Minneapolis, and it had its challenges, as it was extremely cold during winters. The area wasn't renowned for pumping out stars, despite Bob Dylan being from Minneapolis himself. Minneapolis only had one main radio station, called KQRS-FM, that played a mixture of rock music such as Led Zeppelin, Fleetwood Mac, Carlos Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Cream and Grand Funk Railroad. R&B was rarely heard on radio in the area, so Prince would take influence from the white rock scene. Prince would head down to the local record store every Friday after school and search for new music to listen to or purchase, and discovered bands like Led Zeppelin and solo artists like Joni Mitchell. Prince would search hard to also listen to his personal favourites and R&B artists who would only be played on an AM radio station called KUXL. That was limited to the north side of Minneapolis where the area had more African Americans compared to other parts of Minneapolis. Prince talks about radio in these areas at the time as he says, Back then, radio was localised. We had a DJ named Farrow Black, Kyle Ray and Jack Harris. Jack Harris had his own band, that's how funky he was. He would choose what we listened to, and he had great taste. These artists included James Brown, Larry Graham, The Jackson Five, Sly and the Family Stone, Miles Davis, Earth, Wind and Fire, Stevie Wonder, and Little Richard. Prince listened to as much music as he could get his hands on, and loved the sounds of funk, R&B, all the way to rock and pop. Prince's two idols were James Brown for his fashion sense and energetic funk performances, while he thought Stevie Wonder was amazing as a blind multi-instrumentalist, and took inspiration later in life from both of these stars to form his own identity. His other favourites were Jimi Hendrix, Sly and the Family Stone, The Jackson Five, Aretha Franklin, and Santana. As Prince reached age six to seven, home life became a generally unhappy one as he was raised in a strict religious seven-day Adventist household and his father was often hard on him and wanted him to grow up to be a famous musician just like his father had dreamed for himself. 
Prince admitted later in life on The Oprah Winfrey Show that his father was abusive when they were young, but despite this, Prince looked up to his father and loved him dearly. Despite his father pushing his dreams onto him, Prince thoroughly enjoyed music and he and his sister Tika were taught by their father how to play piano. His father would often sit with him and write songs together and was one of the only ways the two would bond. Prince was first taught by his father to play the Ray Charles song, Unchain My Heart. Prince dreamed of being as good as his father, stating, I thought I would never be able to play like my dad, and he never missed an opportunity to remind me of that. But we got along good. He was my best friend. During 1965, Prince's parents' relationship began to diminish, and Prince would observe and be caught in the middle of a number of heated physical and verbal arguments. He described these fights as damaging and soul-crushing, as he describes a particular argument that seemingly would have traumatised the seven-year-old Prince, as his mother stormed into his room to hold Prince up in the middle of herself and his father in a physical fight to use him as a deterrent or peace treaty to get him to stop. Prince described his mother as loving and caring, but she also had another side to her personality that was unfair and seemingly selfish. His mother wanted more in life and wanted to travel and experience the good things in life, whereas his father was content with just providing and ensuring that they had food on the table. When Prince's parents continued to fight over money and John's obsession with music, they eventually decided to get a divorce when Prince was just seven years old. His father would leave the family home during 1966, with Prince remaining with his mother. This had a major effect on Prince and his siblings although he was happy to escape the constant fighting. Prince just wanted to live in a peaceful home that would allow him to be creative. So when his father moved out, leaving behind his piano, Prince was also free to explore the wonders of the piano himself, without his father there, and he taught himself a range of TV theme songs, including the Batman theme song and The Man From U.N.C.L.E. At just the age of seven, Prince wrote his first song on piano, calling it Funk Machine a reference to the type of music Prince loved, including James Brown's Get Up I Feel Like a Sex Machine. Prince would often hear his parents on the phone late of a night, as his mother occasionally would plead for him to come back. Prince's father would come by every weekend and take him and Tika to church and out to dinner, which worked quite well initially. Everyone was happier, although Prince missed having his mother there with him. Despite this, he felt like he got to know his father better since their divorce, and looked up to him as his hero. Prince began to dislike living with his mother and the selfish way she would act at times, despite loving her dearly. His mother was a strong, independent woman who would often spend what little money they had on jewellery and partying with her friends, even going as far as borrowing Prince's hard-earned money from babysitting the local neighbourhood kids and would never pay him back. Despite this, Prince enjoyed providing and contributing to put food on the table. Prince babysat for Jerry Motormouth Mac, who was a local celebrity, DJ on radio. Jerry had unlimited access to all the latest and greatest new music on the scene, and had a range of instruments where Prince learned a lot from him. Prince was amazed by Jerry's amplifier of all things, and had never seen one in person besides on TV while watching a performance by the Beatles. Prince would spend a lot of his spare time listening to artists such as B.B. King, James Brown, Aretha Franklin in Jerry's basement studio. Prince would attend a Minnesota dance theatre and their urban arts program, giving Prince a taste of a range of artistic forms of expression, including training in ballet. 
The program was set out to guide students who didn't excel at academics. As Prince was raised in Minneapolis as an African-American child, he was noticeably different to other children at his school, as his peers were almost all of Caucasian or white backgrounds. The African-American population at the time in Minnesota only made up 5% of the population, with the majority being of white heritage. During his schooling years, Prince was mocked for being black and bullied quite regularly for looking different and was often called a range of horrible names for his racial background. Prince sported a large afro, was skinny and a lot smaller compared to the rest of the kids his age, only growing to 150cm tall as an adult. Prince was an extrovert and very confident around those he knew well, though when surrounded by strangers, he would go into his shell and become very shy and reserved. As he was a small and shy kid, he knew if he wanted to stand out that he needed to have a gimmick and be unique. This led him to take up tap dancing with his sister Tika. He performed in an after-school talent show, doing tap dancing to no music, but it turned out to be an embarrassing experience and believes he was probably no good with people clapping just to see him get off stage. Following his performance, Prince was walking home with his sister Tika when a known bully by the name of Dwight was following him with his brother and began mocking him. Prince describes in his autobiography that this moment almost dented his confidence forever, but luckily he brushed it off. He began writing lists of aspirations and dreams and every girlfriend he ever had and wrote lists about anything, which began his love of writing. He often sketched and would draw pictures of musicians and he even made his own comic sketches up. In 1968, at just the age of 10, Prince's parents finalised their divorce with his mother remarrying Hayward Baker, who she already shared a child to. Prince would move into their home and Prince began to rebel to a certain extent. During this time, Prince's mother started to believe that he might be gay as he would wear curlers in his hair and he would dress eccentrically. His mother wasn't happy about the possibility of this and gave Prince his first Playboy magazine, thinking this should solve everything. His mother and stepfather would leave erotic material and Playboy magazines around the house for him to browse. Prince was just still a kid at age 11, like any young boy who was imaginative and aspired to reach for the stars, as he sat watching Neil Armstrong land on the moon with his best friend Dennis, before running outside pretending to be astronauts. He hadn't been interested in sex or known much about it up until this point, despite knowing he was interested in girls and the beauty they possessed. But this would change everything, and perhaps confused him in a lot of ways over his sexuality, and he himself believes having access to Playboy was heavily influential on his sexuality. His father was a heavily devoted Christian, although his stepfather was not, and he recalls the time his stepfather, Haywood Baker, took him to an erotic rated R18 plus movie at the drive-ins, as his mother suggested Hayward speaks to him about the birds and the bees. Instead, his stepfather decided to let the movie tell Prince for him, to avoid the awkward conversation. This would spark an obsession with sex that would last a lifetime. Prince had a rocky relationship with his stepfather, but on one special occasion at the age of 12, Hayward took Prince to his first ever live concert, starring his idol and the godfather of soul and funk, James Brown. This was yet another moment that transformed Prince's outlook on music and life. During the concert, Prince's stepfather picked him up and placed him on the stage next to James Brown, and Prince began dancing away with his idol before James Brown's bodyguard came and grabbed him off stage. On the way out of the concert hall, 
Prince looked over to see James Brown's dancing girls and thought they looked stunning, sexy and beautiful. He knew right then and there that he was not only interested in women, but that he too could have everything James Brown has and knew that music was what he wanted to pursue. At age 12, Prince's mother gave birth to his half-brother, Omar Baker, who he would grow to despise, causing Prince to run away often and move between houses with his mother, auntie and father. Prince now had seven siblings to compete with for attention between houses and eventually would move out of home with his mother due to his relationship with his stepfather worsening. As Prince once said, I think maybe I was too much of a punk back then to deal with the situation I was in. Although Hayward made his mother happy, Prince was not and left home to move in with his father. He revealed in an interview later in 1981, I ran away from home when I was 12. I've changed addresses in Minneapolis 32 times, and there was a great deal of loneliness. But when I think about it, I know I'm here for a purpose, and I don't worry about it so much. Prince then began to catch the bus to Southside schools, such as Bryant Junior High School. Southside had very little African Americans attending school there, which made him a target for racial abuse. Many of the kids there were well off, and he recalls a time a kid called him nigger, so he retaliated and punched him square in the face, forcing him to run off and cry. Due to these circumstances, he felt he had to stand up for himself, and became very aggressive and would take on anyone in a fight if he had to. His best friend at the Southside school was Jewish, and he remembers him getting badly bullied where kids would throw rocks at him due to being Jewish. Although Prince's biological father, John, was not doing the best financially, he was still employed as a plaster molder and playing gigs of a night. Prince admired his father as he was quite the handyman and worked two jobs. Prince would convince his father to take him to the Woodstock Festival as Jimi Hendrix was performing there. Surprisingly, his father agreed, but said he must attend church first before the concert. Prince was excited to see Sly and the Family Stone, Jimi Hendrix and Santana, and he absolutely loved it. It taught him that when performing, it's important to always give your all, as there will always be someone new in the crowd seeing you for the first time, and those moments can change and inspire everything. Prince's father never spoke down to Prince again after Woodstock, realising his passion for music. His father was adamant about supporting his son's musical aspirations and purchased him his first guitar, which was a vanilla buttermilk-coloured Fender Stratocaster, identical to Jimi Hendrix's guitar that he used at Woodstock. Prince would spend hours upon hours teaching himself to play guitar and eventually mastered it relatively quickly before moving on to other instruments. Prince learned a lot about his father's dedication to music during this time, which would later reflect in Prince's own work ethic as a musician. Prince would venture down to the local music store and teach himself how to play a range of instruments, mastering the drums here. He would often play his father's piano while his father was at work, experimenting and honing his style. The apartment which they lived in started to feel cramped as he got older, and as his father started to look at finding a more roomy house, Prince briefly moved in with his auntie Olivia and her husband Uncle Mason in South Minneapolis while he attended Bryant Junior High School on the South Side. While attending this school, his good friend from the North Side would often fill him in on what he had been missing in the neighbourhood like shootings, teen pregnancies and fights at school. His friend's name was Andre and he would often visit and hang out with Prince at his dad's and aunt's house. 
While living with his aunt, it was also another negative experience as they were already going through a lot themselves. His auntie had recently found his uncle in bed with another woman from church and stayed with him as it was the Christian thing to do. This didn't stop her treating him terribly though and Uncle Mason had lost the feeling in his legs so the mood was often dismal there. Prince tried to escape as much as possible by hanging out with friends from both North and Southside. He soon returned to live with his father but continued to take the school bus to Southside, Minneapolis to attend school there. That was until his relationship with his father became strained and Prince moved back and forth between his aunts and fathers before settling in with his good friend from the north side, Andre Anderson. Around the age of 12, puberty hit and Prince's hormones began to rage as a young man and he began taking a keen interest in girls. While attending junior high on Southside, he met a girl named Debbie who became his first crush and girlfriend. He loved her long flowing afro, strong solid frame, and even her acne that he felt made her look cute, vulnerable and approachable. Debbie loved music and introduced him to a range of R&B, soul and popular music, opening up his mind to a new variety of music. The two shared a kiss when Debbie continually played the song, Show Me How by The Emotions, a total of eight times, as she tried to persuade him to kiss her. Unfortunately, this relationship wouldn't last too long, when the attractive quarterback for the school football team took an interest in her as she was a cheerleader and she left Prince for him. He went on to have a number of other girlfriends and intimate moments, as he dated a nice girl he met at a dance and house party named Marcy and a bad girl introduced by his sister Tyka named Kerry who he claims was his first official girlfriend, while even sharing a passionate kiss with a girl named Petey while playing a dare game at school. These moments all would contribute to future songwriting material and shaped his thoughts on intimacy, sex and love. On one fateful occasion, Prince was kicked out of home after his father found him in bed with a girl. Prince begged and pleaded for his father to allow him to stay, but his religious father couldn't take him back as he had broken the rules and felt he betrayed his faith. Prince revealed later in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine that after he was kicked out, he went to a payphone, as Prince said, I called my dad and begged him, and to take me back. He said no, so I called my sister Tika, and begged her to ask him. So she did, and afterwards told me, all I had to do was call him back, tell him I was sorry, and he'd take me back. So I did, and he still said no. I sat crying at the phone booth for two hours. That's the last time I cried. Due to Prince's home life at his aunties, mothers and stepfathers also being hostile and feeling like he had nowhere to go, he went and stayed at his good friend Andre Anderson's at the Anderson house. Known as the Andersons to the locals, Andre's parents, Fred and Bernadette, happily took in the 12-year-old and gave him a room in their basement. Fred Anderson was also a musician who had previously played in Prince's dad's band, the Prince Rogers Trio, and Bernadette was a social worker who worked with Prince's mother. Prince and his family initially met the Andersons when attending the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and Bernadette was known in the community as Queen Bernie and was a loving and caring woman who Prince was extremely fond of. Prince had got to know Andre better in seventh grade while attending Lincoln Junior High, while he was staying with his dad on Northside for a brief period. The two bonded over music and headed back to Prince's dad's house while he wasn't home and played a range of instruments together. Andre was a great friend to Prince as he talks about the time they jammed together when they first met as Andre says, he sat at his father's piano 
and played several television and movie theme songs. I played along on a large-scale ukulele. I think for the first time in his life, and I know for the first time in mine, we found someone in each other who took music and all of its possibilities extremely seriously. I think after that day, we were pretty much inseparable. We hung out all the time. Ever since then, the two were inseparable. It had been a long and stressful year for Prince, and he was glad to be residing where he felt safe with his best friend. As the house was already overcrowded, as Andre had five other siblings, Andre moved into the attic, with Prince settling into his room in the basement. The basement was dark and apparently full of centipedes, but was a great personal space for Prince that gave him freedom. He and Andre would bring many girls home to this hangout over the years and have many jam sessions discovering their musical sound down here as they played instruments and blasted records. Andre would teach Prince how to play bass guitar and the two grew close like brothers as teens. Andre later in life relived this time as he stated, he ran away, asked if he could stay with me. He was very frustrated. I don't remember verbatim what the conversation was other than, I can't deal with that shit anymore. He just turned up. I don't think he turned up with his stuff. At the time we were basically the same height, so he just wore a lot of my clothes. We lived in the same room on the ground floor. Disastrous. He was fairly neat. I'm completely a mess. Then he moved into the basement. I moved into the attic. Andre's mother Bernadette raised Prince like a son and expected him to do chores around the house and attend school to get good grades. She was very close to Prince and would remain so throughout his life. In Prince's teenage years, he began dressing outlandish and flashy as a way of getting attention and to stand out, as he wasn't getting the love and attention from his parents. He sported a large afro and wore a choker at one stage and always made sure he stood out fashion-wise. He was a talented basketballer who was zippy and fast, making many school teams throughout junior high alongside his stepbrother Dwayne, and he was a more than capable player. That was until he stopped growing and struggled to keep up in the sport, so he quit. Prince was a big sport fan, and it served as a good distraction in his life from home troubles. He also played baseball and gridiron, while also attending Bryant Junior High School, Lincoln Junior High School, and then in Central High School. One of Prince's teachers and basketball coach, Gene Anderson, recalls Prince as a young, talented student, as he says, I guess I knew him when he was 12, 13, 14 years old, just kind of coming into his own. Really nice kid, very smart. A quick learner, you know, maybe a little headstrong. He felt he was doing the right thing all the time. I had him in social studies, and I think I had him in geography and US history, and I coached the little basketball team he was on. He was a smaller kid, but very athletic, and he could dribble the basketball probably better than anybody on that little team. You couldn't get your hands on him. I mean, it was like chasing a water bug. Andre remembers Prince being a fanatical NBA fan, as he stated, he knew all the basketball players at the time. Whenever he'd shoot, he'd say some player's name. Prince was an epic ping pong or table tennis player and could beat almost anyone. The family were all very athletic and sporty and all aspired to be athletes until Prince found music to be his true passion and would find himself jamming in the music room every chance he got. He approached the band or music director of the school, Mr. Jim Hamilton, and asked him for musical theory lessons and would give up his lunchtime to learn and take in all the knowledge he could. Although encouraged by classmates and teachers to join the school band or take music lessons, 
he declined and preferred to practice alone. He eventually, however, did take up lessons back in Northside. Andre remembers Prince having a special notebook of comebacks and witty lines written out during his high school years to prevent bullying and to even ask out girls, as he states. His sense of humour was really thought out. He wasn't somebody who did a lot of stuff just off the cuff. When we became friends, he would tell me about the kids in the neighbourhood. He'd say, This kid Jerry, he's going to try and do this. If he comes up to you and says anything, his mum's name is this. His mum had some funny name, and Prince literally had a spiral notebook with jokes that was ready to tell in case the kid said anything to him. He had written them down, literally. He had all this stuff, and I finally just said, Well, why can't I just punch him in the nose? And he said, Oh, you don't want to do that. He's got like 16 brothers. I was like, okay, what's that joke again? When Prince was 13 years old, he sought the advice of a local musician named Pepe Willie, who was married to his cousin Chantel. Prince eagerly wanted to learn about the music industry, publishing and copyright. Pepe taught him a lot and it inspired Prince to push further. At the age of 13 to 14, Prince would embark on reaching for his dreams when he started a band that was initially unnamed. The band consisted of Prince on keyboard, guitar and vocals, Prince's neighbour and now adopted brother, Andre Anderson, on bass and vocals, and Prince's cousin, Charles Smith, on drums. The three-piece would rehearse and jam out in Prince's bedroom basement. Shortly after this, another neighbour of Andre and Prince's, named Terry Jackson, would become the fourth member of the band as an extra percussionist on the timbales. The band would often play at Jackson's house, and it was here where they brainstormed names for the band, including Charles, Cousin and Friends, Phoenix and Sex Machine, before finally calling the band Grand Central. Andre's sister Linda soon joined as the organ player, while another neighbourhood kid named William Doherty joined as a bongo player. The now six-piece neighbourhood band would venture out to perform at parties, local community centres and high school dances and proms around Minneapolis. They played a wide variety of current top 40 hits and white music targeted at the audience. In 1974, when Prince was 16, his second cousin Chris left the band and was replaced by 18-year-old drummer Morris Day. Prince at this time was sexually active and had brought many girlfriends back to his basement room and wrote many of his early songs about these sexual experiences. The band started to write a lot more original material and became a lot more professional in their approach to rehearsals. While Morris Day's mother began to manage the band, the band built a name for themselves on the north side of Minneapolis, but were still not getting paid much for gigs. Grand Central began performing in Battle of the Bands competitions against other local bands, including The Family, who were led by one of Prince's mentors and family friends, Sonny Thompson. Prince and his bandmates would jam with Sonny and other bands regularly, which opened him up to a range of styles and uses of different instruments. Prince and his band Grand Central even got the opportunity to perform at school proms and homecoming dances, as well as community centres, where they played a wide variety of top 40 hits. At age 16, Prince would struggle to afford food and was completely broke. Prince would stand out the front of McDonald's just to smell the food cooking. He describes his youth as a very bitter and frustrating time caused by a range of things, but most notably, the lack of money and financial security itself. Prince would look through the yellow pages searching for jobs, but was never successful when applying and decided it was time to move up a level and apply himself further with his music. 
During these days, he began to hone his own personal style, combining a range of genres such as funk, soul, blues, dance, disco, rock, punk, and even jazz. During 1974, Prince's mentor, Pepe Willy, who was now married to his cousin Chantel, would offer to manage the band as he saw something special in Prince. The first official Grand Central track to be recorded was a song Prince wrote called Sex Machine, before Pepe decided to utilise him on a couple of tracks for his own band called 94 East. At this stage, Prince was now 17 years old and was set to work on Pepe's album. Prince would be put to work with his friend Andre to aid in recording of the tracks, exposing them to how the process all works. Prince provided his expertise on guitar, recording a number of riffs to be used on the tracks. Prince would eventually help co-write the song Just Another Sucker that he also played guitar on, displaying his early signs of being a perfectionist that would make him so great in the future. Prince believed he had made a mistake and decided to call Pepe and insisted he came down to the studio to fix it. Pepe opened the studio for him and headed back off to play some golf. When Pepe returned, he discovered Prince had finished the song and made it 10 times better. Prince began getting a reputation around Minnesota as a talented up-and-comer, which excited the young man. Musicians such as Jimmy Jam were blown away by the young, talented artist and multi-instrumentalist and the dedication he showed to his music. When Prince returned to his band Grand Central after completing the East 94 tracks, Prince came across an English producer named Chris Moon who was well-renowned in the area for offering young talent and upcoming local bands studio time. Prince managed to get a slot in the studio and began recording with his bandmates Andre and Charles when the two decided to take a break for an ice cream, while Prince would stay back to focus on the task at hand. Chris Moon was paying close attention to the young dedicated musician strolling about the recording studio, playing a range of instruments from drums to guitar, bass and piano. Moon was impressed and amazed that one man could play all these instruments so proficiently and thought he better move quickly to snap up the young talent. Chris Moon made a deal with Prince that he could use everything in the studio for free and Moon would pay for everything if he would include him on the royalties for songs that he had helped write. Prince agreed and Moon then arranged for Prince to record a solo demo tape that they could use to get him a record deal. Prince left Grand Central in late 1976. The band would later be renamed Champagne and fold in 1978. In the meantime, Prince worked with his family friend, Sonny Thompson, also known as Sonny T, from the band Back to Black and The Family, where he sung backing vocals and played guitar for the track Got To Be Something Here, for Sonny's new band, The Lewis Connection. Every day after school, Prince would catch the bus across town to Chris Moon's recording studio, where he would pick from three different sets of lyrics to choose from to sing. Prince recorded all of his own instrumental parts perfectly, although recording Prince's voice was the most challenging part, as he sung softly but high. Prince was very shy about singing in front of others, so Chris would turn out the lights so he couldn't see anyone watching him, and he would sing his heart out. The demo included the track Soft and Wet, which was co-written by Prince and Chris Moon. Prince originally wanted to go by the name Mr. Nelson, but Chris advised him otherwise, as Prince was unique. Towards the end of 1976, Prince would graduate from Central High School in Minneapolis, bringing him up to chase his musical career. The now 18-year-old Prince paid for a ticket to New York after earning some cash for his work with 94 East and Sunny T, where he stayed with his older half-sister, Sharon Nelson, and began taking his demo to local record labels. 
Over time, Prince realised that no one was getting back to him and that he was struggling in New York to get a call back for a meeting. While Prince was still in New York, Chris Moon decided to take the demo to Owen Husney, who ran an advertisement and concept promoting company in Loring Park, Minneapolis. Husney was well known in the industry and had received many demos over the years to no interest of his. But when he put Prince's tape on, Husney was blown away and was instantly interested at how different the sound was. Husney asked Chris, who's the band? Which Chris replied, it's not a band, it's one kid. He's just turned 18 and he's singing and playing all the instruments. Prince's ability to carry a whole song on his own and produce his powerful but vulnerable falsetto inspired Husney to become Prince's manager and get him back on the plane to Minneapolis to sign a contract immediately. As Husney revealed, the first thing I noticed on these demos, he was this young, angelic, vulnerable falsetto, and Prince's natural speaking voice was pretty low, and I thought, what did this kid look like? All I kept thinking was, God I hope he's not ugly. When Owen first met Prince, he described him as he stated, he didn't look at all like he looked later on. The clothing he was wearing was not the clothing of a wealthy man, trust me, but he had put it together as deft as one could. He'd got some jeans, the jeans were ironed, he had ironed a nice little crease down the centre of his jeans, and maybe a jean jacket kind of thing, and a brown turtleneck sweater. Obviously like most 18 year olds, he had acne and stuff like that, he had a rather large afro. Within a week, Prince had a new manager known as Owen Husney, and due to the new deal, he was able to afford to move out of his basement bedroom at the Andersons, and move out of his sister's and trade it for his first apartment in uptown Minneapolis. Prince was then introduced to a brother duo of David Z and Bobby Z Rivkin. David would become Prince's sound engineer, while Bobby ran advertisement errands and drove Prince to important appointments. Prince sporting his fuzzy afro, acne and stubble on his face, got straight to work at Sound 80 Studios, polishing his demo tracks in the studio. While Prince was working on his craft in the studio, his manager Owen Husney managed to get a number of meetings in Los Angeles with Columbia Records, A&M and Warner Brothers. All three showed keen interest, but it was Warner Brothers that produced the best offer, allowing for a three-album deal, which would become the largest deal for a new unknown artist to date. Prince became a signed artist at only the age of 19, under a promising deal that allowed him creative control for the next three albums. Prince had also reached the agreement to produce the album completely himself. Prince also wanted to be portrayed as an artist without a category such as the usual black or R&B and wanted to be promoted as a genre-fusing and racial neutral artist for everyone to enjoy, no matter your taste or skin colour. Prince was assigned an executive producer Tommy Vicari from Warner Brothers and he deemed Sound 80 Studios to be insufficient so they relocated to California. Following the deal, Prince, Vakari, Husney and Husney's wife moved to Sausalito, California to record Prince's debut album, titled For You, at Record Plant Studios. Prince had brought his good friend Andre to accompany him at the studio where he got hard at work. The album would take a total of two to three months to record and mix and was a process that involved long hours. Vakari attempted to implement his own influence on the album, but Prince wouldn't have any of it. He was determined to bring his vision to life and be the sole influence. For the album, Prince would record himself playing all of the 27 instruments used, including the bass guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, bongos, drums, bass synth, 
fuzz bass, electric piano, acoustic piano, mini moog, poly moog, art pro soloist, arp string ensemble, Oberheim 4 voice, clavinet, syn drums, water drums, slapsticks, congas, finger cymbals, wind chimes, orchestral bells, wood blocks, brush trap, tree bell, hand claps, and finger snaps. Prince would be the only musician to play all of the instruments on the entire album, which was simply insane and unique. He had a vision and didn't want anyone else getting in the way or playing the instruments, without the same perfection and dedication he brought to them. On the 7th of April 1978, Prince's debut album, For You, was released to the world. It famously read in the notes, produced, arranged, composed and performed by Prince. It was an album full of sexually charged tracks, soulful gospel songs, and funky disco beats. It managed to peak at number 21 on the US Billboard Top Black Albums chart, but failed to crack the top 100 on the US and the UK mainstream charts. The album was heavily scrutinised upon its release by critics, but his falsetto voice and tracks like Baby and Soft and Wet did give the album some credibility. The funky track Soft and Wet was the album's most notable track and was released as Prince's debut single on the 7th of June 1978 and managed to peak at number 12 on the US Soul Charts and number 92 on the US Billboard Hot 100 but failed to chart elsewhere. When he first heard himself on radio for the first time, he was shocked as he didn't think he sounded like that. His second single, Just As Long As We're Together, also failed to chart despite being an upbeat funky and catchy pop tune. The opening track on the album, titled For You, was a short soulful track displaying Prince's beautiful soft but high vocals, while the track In Love, which was an underrated funky synth love song, and the acoustic sad ballad, So Blue, are just some of his best early work. Prince rounds out his debut album with the funk rock track I'm Yours, which features some incredible guitar solos and riffs from the 19-year-old. The album For You would only sell 950,000 copies worldwide. At the beginning of January 1979, the time came for Prince to select a band to accompany him on tour and in live performances. Prince's debut album perhaps would have received more airtime if it had been promoted with live concerts, but due to Prince playing every instrument, it was impossible to do so. Prince was given full control over picking his live band and thought it was a good chance to portray his ideals about equality and not judging by sex or race. Prince chose five members of a range of male and female and black and white musicians, labelling them the Rainbow Band. Prince enlisted his good friend Andre Anderson on bass, who was now going by the name Andre Simone. Next was Des Dickerson on guitar, followed by Gail Chapman and Matt Fink, renamed Dr. Fink, on keyboard, and Prince's former errand boy Bobby Rivkin as Bobby Z on drums. Prince would make his live debut with his new band at the Capri Theatre in North Minneapolis, just up the road from Prince's childhood home. Dressed in jeans, a white frilly shirt, and sporting his permed afro, Prince was ready to rock, although the first show wouldn't go exactly to plan, as Prince was incredibly nervous and would often mumble his words into the microphone, scared to let go and unleash his voice, while the rest of the band were quite rusty and out of sync. On the second night, things got worse when some of the band's equipment was stolen from their rehearsal space, and to top it off, Warner Brothers executives were in attendance. During the show, a snowstorm hit in conjunction with a number of electrical problems, affecting the sound systems and amplifiers. 
At one stage there was a malfunction with the new wireless technology, causing local CB radios to be picked up and played over the top of the band's music on the PA and through Des Dickerson's guitar. The executives concluded that Prince needed more time to develop his music and gel with his band. Despite the surprising lack of success of Prince's first album, it drove him harder to perfect his second. While he also put his rusty first shows behind him, focusing on improving every aspect of his and his band's performance. From April to June of 1979, Prince worked on his next album and on the 24th of August, he was ready to release his first single called I Wanna Be Your Lover and would be the breakthrough he needed. I Wanna Be Your Lover would go to number one in the US on their R&B and hip hop charts and soul charts while also reaching number 2 on the US dance charts and in New Zealand, peaking at 11 on the Billboard Hot 100 and 41 in the UK. At just the age of 21, Prince had his first hit, selling over 1 million copies of the single in the US. The groovy funk track, sung entirely in falsetto, would become a crowd favourite. It featured a great identifiable guitar riff, along with the flowing beat of the drums, rhythm guitar and synthesizers, which makes for a catchy tune that had Americans begging for more. The song was written by Prince about jazz pianist and singer Patrice Russian and a crush that he had on her despite her being with someone else. Originally the song was offered to Patrice, along with the track I Feel For You, but she rejected them with Prince deciding to use them himself. I Feel For You would become a hit in 1984 after being remixed by Chaka Khan. On the 29th of October, Prince would release his second studio album, self-titled Prince. Again, like many of his albums over his career, he would produce, arrange, compose and sing on this album and play all instruments. The album artwork featured a shirtless, hairy-chested Prince with his flowing afro, moustache and his iconic, widely gazing brown eyes staring blankly towards the viewer in front of a blue backdrop. The album would peak at number 3 on the US R&B album charts and 22 on the US Billboard album chart, selling around 2 to 3 million copies worldwide and going platinum in the US. Despite the album's improved success in the US, Prince still had a long way to go to become a household name and break into Europe and the rest of the world. On January 23rd, 1980, Prince released the album's second single called Why You Wanna Treat Me So Bad. The track managed to reach number 13 on the US R&B charts, becoming a crowd favourite at concerts. The track was a fun pop rock tune and features a beautiful guitar solo from Prince while also including some great instrumentals on the keyboard. Three days after releasing the track, Prince and his live band appeared on the television show American Bandstand, hosted by Dick Clark in 1979, where they debuted I Wanna Be Your Lover, which was Prince's first television appearance. After performing I Wanna Be Your Lover, Dick Clark walks onto stage to interview Prince in an awkward one-on-one. -on -one. Prince looked physically uncomfortable and anxious, answering questions with hand gestures and using little to no words to answer a question. Some suggested that Prince simply got shy and realised that thousands watched the show every week and that he was on centre stage and simply cracked under pressure. Although Prince and his bandmate Des Dickerson would explain that Dick Clark simply overstepped his bounds in the green room before the performance and then again on stage as he asked a sarcastically judgy question about where the band hailed from, being Minneapolis. Prince took offence to this and purposely made the interview awkward, which worked as Dick Clark would later reveal it would be the hardest interview he had ever done. Yeah. How do you learn to do this in Minneapolis? 
Where? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not the kind of music that comes from Minneapolis, Minnesota. No. <laughs> Would you be kind enough, sir, please, to introduce me to your friend? Let's start with the bass player here. Andre Simone. Andre. <laughs> the man who escaped behind keyboard. Matt Fink. Nice to see you. Man on uh, drums. Bobby Z. And the gentleman over here. Des Dickerson. And lastly, on keyboards. Gail Chapman. Hello, Dale. Nice to have you. Let's sneak over here, saying, I said there's something, uh, something about the effect that you made a couple of demonstration in records when you were a teenager. You're, you're barely more than that now, are you? Nineteen. Nineteen. Well, you got another year to go before you graduate. How many years ago did you did you make these demos and then uh, have offers on them? And why would you turn it down? Um, they wouldn't let me produce myself. You were 15 at the time. Yeah. Would they think you didn't know what you were doing? Don't know. Were you ever disappointed that you didn't let them do that to you? No. Did you produce... Did somebody tell me you played every instrument on this album? Is that correct? Maybe. No, that's... You're very shy, modest. How many, how many instruments do you play? Mm. Thousands. Moments will be with you. Thousands? No. Literally, do you play all the instruments? Um, a lot. If that is the case, then... Oh, I know. If you're out traveling, then you've got to have backup people. Are these people the ones that travel with you? What are your plans for travel? Uh, we have a tour coming up uh, in a few weeks. Well, we'll look forward to it. We thank you all very much for joining us. What's the name of the next song? Why you want to treat me so bad? All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Prince. Des Dickerson revealed that Prince knew what he was going to do to get back at Dick Clark for being rude and stuck up, as he said that it was totally calculated. We knew when one of those cornerstone moments were coming. It was a look he would get on his face. He called us to order in that band meeting when Dick Clark had just left the green room, and he had that look on his face, and he said, I got it. Here's what we're going to do. When he talks to you, don't say a word. It was uncomfortable watching Dick and Prince kind of go back and forth, watching him handle something that was obviously a pitch he'd never been thrown before. The answer that was given was so pared down that there's nothing to piggyback on. Excruciatingly uncomfortable. Towards the end of February, Prince and his Rainbow Band would wrap up their first tour of the US after 25 shows. Prince next released his third single, Still Waiting, in March 1980 as his final single from the album, which was a great soulful bluesy ballad that charted at number 65 on the US R&B chart and was written about Prince yearning to find love. The track Sexy Dancer became a hit on the US dance charts, coming in at number 2, and it mainly features instrumentals and few lyrics mixed in with Prince's grunts and screams. There were a number of notable and underrated tracks from the album that were also fan favourites, including the heavier Led Zeppelin and Cream-influenced guitar-based rock song called Bambi, about Prince's attempt to turn a lesbian straight for him as he sings the lines, I knew from the start that I loved you with all my heart, but you were untrue, you had another lover, and she looked just like you. Bambi, can't you understand? Bambi, it's better with a man. Not only does Prince play a great heavy rock riff on electric guitar, but his vocals are badass and offer a variety to the album, showing just how great he can play a range of genres. While the beautiful ballad called When We're Dancing Close and Slow is sung almost like a different vocalist is singing, as Prince almost sounds like a woman. 
The song draws similarities to that of one of Prince's influences in Fleetwood Mac and is before its time as it features unique mystical sounds and a beautiful acoustic guitar performance from Prince. The song speaks about the sexual and loving feelings Prince feels and being completely vulnerable to his lover. Overall, Prince's second album was a step in the right direction and saw him experience his first taste of success with the hit I Wanna Be Your Lover, while proving he had a lot of talent to produce the whole album himself successfully. While receiving a mix of reviews, critics began to rave about Prince and started predicting he would become a star of the future. The album appeared to encapsulate the influences that had shaped his musical tastes, and the album overall was better produced than his debut as expected. In this time, he earned the respect and befriended a number of respected musicians, including one of his personal favourites in Carlos Santana. Prince and his band would next embark on their second tour as a support act for funk superstar Rick James, known for his hit Super Freak. They performed 43 shows across the US before heading back into the studio to record his next album. Prince's third album, Dirty Mind, was again fully self-recorded and produced and would be released on the 8th of October 1980, becoming his most critically acclaimed and provocative yet, receiving almost perfect reviews by top critics. Although it sold slightly less than his previous self-titled album, with 1.5 million copies sold worldwide this time around. With its highly sexualized content, it was seen as controversial, daring and revolutionary. The lyrics in songs such as Do Me All Night and Head talk about taboo topics such as threesomes, ejaculation and oral sex, which shocked some but inspired others. The album included a mix of funk, new wave, dance and punk and was the first time we hear Prince's more typical sound that continues through the 80s. Despite critics raving about the album, some were quick to label him as a homosexual due to the feminine way he would portray his lyrics, stage persona, and even his provocative album cover. The album cover artwork featured opposing prints in his underwear, wearing an unbuttoned jacket and scarf, while his feminine high voice and genderless image throughout the album linked him to these rumours. Prince began wearing high-heeled boots, bikini briefs, and flaunting around sexually on stage during live performances, which ultimately led to keyboard player Gail Chapman leaving the band as it went against her religious beliefs, despite Prince being raised religious himself. She would later be replaced by Lisa Coleman. Prince simply wanted to break gender stereotypes and inspire people to be who they are and be free to express themselves. Dirty Mind managed to peak at number 7 on the US Billboard R&B Albums chart, selling 1 million copies in the US. It didn't fare too well across the world, but is now looked upon as a pioneering album for breaking barriers for other artists, looking to express themselves freely in relation to race, gender and sexuality. Due to the album's raunchy singles, it struggled to be aired on mainstream radio, therefore limiting its impact on the mainstream charts. The first single from the album was the disco funk track called Uptown that peaked at number 5 on both the Soul US chart and the Dance Club charts in the US. Prince wrote the song about the uptown neighbourhood of Minneapolis being an escape for artists like himself to hang out and escape media scrutiny and standing up to the narrow-minded individuals in relation to racism and being asked if he was gay constantly. The lyrics clearing up to his fans that he is indeed heterosexual but explaining that it doesn't matter. As Prince sings, She saw me walking down the streets of your fine city. It kinda turned me on when she looked at me and said, Come here. 
Now I don't usually talk to strangers, but she looks so pretty. What can I lose if I just give her a little ear? What's up little girl? I ain't got time to play. Baby didn't say too much. She said, are you gay? Kinda took me by surprise. I didn't know what to do. I just looked her in the eyes and said, no, are you? The second single named after the album, called Dirty Mind, was released on the 26th of November and peaked at number 5 on the dance charts in the US, but yet again was too sexually inclined to be played on mainstream media. The song was a great catchy tune, with a thumping synth and bass beat that saw the iconic Prince sound be born. The iconic keyboard sound in the song was played by Dr. Fink, who became the first to be credited on a Prince track. Prince sings about the dirty thoughts he gets when seeing a particular girl that he is attracted to. The second track on Dirty Mind, called When You Were Mine, was released as a promotional single that managed to chart in Canada at number 62. It featured a great rock and roll type guitar riff, while the synth, keyboard and organ was used prominently and was a great underrated track that Prince was inspired to write after listening to John Lennon and talks about still loving a former girlfriend, perhaps now even more now despite knowing she is seeing another man. Regardless of it hurting and feeling betrayed, he can't shake his love for her and still wants her back. The album included some great underrated tracks such as Got a Broken Heart Again, where Prince revisits his high falsetto vocals and almost appears to be singing like a woman, and the strange but funky tune Sister, which talks about the taboo subject of incest. The song was alleged to be fictional and was designed for shock value but may have went too far with the lyrics going into quite some detail, landing him a label as one of the most outrageous and controversial artists around at the time. He appears to be referring to his half-sister Sharon, who he moved in with around the age of 16 when she was 32 years old. Prince went to places no other artist dared of going at the time, which was what made him so unique and groundbreaking. During 1981, Prince would unfortunately have a falling out with his good friend, brother and bass player, Andre Simone, who decided to leave Prince's band over creative control differences and attempted to kickstart his own solo career. Andre was replaced by 18-year-old bass player Mark Brown straight out of high school. Prince and Andre would eventually patch things up, but decided to stick to their own solo work. Andre continued to be managed by Owen Husney and went on to release three albums in the 80s called Living in the New Wave in 1982, Survive in the 80s in 1983 and AC in 1985. He released a total of nine singles over this time with his tracks Make Me Want to Dance reaching number 37 on the R&B chart in the US and The Dance Electric reaching number 10 on the R&B charts and was written by Prince himself. Later in life, he would release a further three albums from 2014 to 2017. Prince would tour with his band once more, both as the headliner and as the support act in 1981 for the Rolling Stones and their Tattoo U tour. Mick Jagger saw Prince perform in New York at the Ritz and was interested by his performance, sparking an idea to invite him on tour. George Farragut and the Destroyers, the Jag Eels band and Prince were the support acts for the tour. At a packed out 100,000 strong crowd at the Memorial Coliseum in Los Angeles, Prince performed first in front of a predominantly white crowd at 2pm during October. He started on a bad note singing a song called Jack You Off right in front of a row of bikers dressed in his black bikini briefs. He began getting bottles, shoes and all sorts of rubbish thrown at him and his bandmates as well, along with booing and racist remarks. 
After just three songs, Prince had enough and felt like the hostile crowd was getting worse. So after just 15 minutes, Prince and his band walked off stage. Prince was shaken up and disheartened by the hecklers and almost cancelled his second performance until Des Dickerson and Mick Jagger encouraged him to come back. When Prince played the second show, he was met by another hostile crowd, this time attempting to play his hits so far, but as soon as he began playing, rubbish began flying onto the stage again. Bottles, shoes, chicken bones, tomatoes and all sorts of trash littered the stage, but Prince instead played on until it got unbearable, forcing them to leave the stage again. Many critics couldn't understand why Prince chose to do the tour and perform in front of a different style audience, but he saw it as an opportunity to break through to the mainstream and attempt to appeal to a new audience. Prince would pull out of the Rolling Stones tour after just two shows and due to it taking a major toll on him. Prince would use all of his experiences and criticism over his taboo topics and push the matter further with his next album titled Controversy. During the Controversy era, Prince would debut his new purple suit style and purple theme that would feature prominently throughout his career. He had also downsized his afro significantly and now had a messier punk hairstyle. The first single released from the album in September 1981, named Controversy, would question all of these notions as the lyrics state, I just can't believe all the things people say. Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? Do I believe in God? Do I believe in me? I can't understand human curiosity. Was it good for you? Was it what you wanted me to be? Do you get high? Does your daddy cry? Some people want to die so they can be free. I said life is just a game. We're all just the same. Do you want to play? Before delivering the Lord's Prayer during the song. The pop funk track becoming his first hit to chart in Australia at number 15 and reaching number 1 on the US dance chart and 3 on the US R&B chart. The album Controversy would again become critically acclaimed and be released on the 14th of October 1981 and peaked at number 3 on the US R&B charts, 21 on the Billboard 200 and 55 in Australia, selling over 1 million copies in the US and going platinum while selling a total of 2.3 million copies worldwide, improving on his last. The rest of the album features sexually explicit tracks and political songs, while the catchy funk track Let's Work would become a popular dance track, charting at number 1 on the dance chart and 9 on the R&B charts. The song Sexuality talks not only about being yourself and loving who you are, but also the political and learnt behaviours forced on us as a society, as well as the lack of educating the young. As Prince delivers the line, No child is bad from the beginning, they only imitate their atmosphere. And, we need a new breed. Leaders, stand up. Organise. I want to be in the new breed. Stand up. Organise. Sexuality is all I'll ever need. Sexuality, I'm gonna let my body be free. Private Joy, Jack You Off, and specifically Do Me Baby, are obviously sexually driven tunes, with Do Me Baby featuring a lengthy period of the song, including Prince's moaning and groaning which further pushed the media to ban his music from the airwaves. It is said that Andre Simone helped write this track, despite not being credited. Ronnie Talk to Russia is one of Prince's first politically driven songs, as Prince delivers a message in relation to the Cold War with Russia and a plea to President Ronald Reagan to hurry up and make a peaceful agreement with Russia to end the threat of a war. As Prince sings, Ronnie Talk to Russia before it's too late, before they blow up the world. 
While Annie Christian talks about a number of historical events, such as John Lennon's death, the punishment of electric chairs, gun control, the attempted shooting of Ronald Reagan, and the horrific murders of African-American children that occurred in Atlanta, Georgia, during 1979 to 1981, where 24 children and 6 adults were killed, shocking the African-American community. The song would feature on the 1982 Controversy Tour before being dropped from future set lists and never to be featured again. During 1981, Prince was inspired after watching the film The Idolmaker. Prince activated a clause in his Warner Brothers contract that allowed him to start side projects and produce other artists for the label. Knowing this, he assembled a funk and R&B group from his hometown of Minneapolis, known in the area as Flight Time, and renamed them The Time. The idea was to provide Prince with an outlet for songs he had written earlier that didn't make the cut on previous albums and work on songs he had written in the earlier disco funk style, allowing Prince to evolve his own music and try new styles. Prince had full control over the band and this would result in him having a number of arguments with the group over their level of involvement. The group included Prince's childhood friend and former bandmate of Grand Central named Morris Day, with the two butting heads regularly. One of these reasons was that the band would not be involved in the recording process for their debut album. Instead, Prince would play all of the instruments himself, with Morris Day on vocals, repeating every line Prince wanted him to. Prince would also credit the production of the album to his alter ego, Jamie Starr, and to just Morris Day of the band. The time would go on to make a name for themselves in the R&B world, with hits like Jungle Love, The Bird, Get It Up, and Jerk Out but struggled to break into the mainstream and worldwide charts. Their rivalry only intensified while on the controversy tour. The time felt that they were getting underpaid, so the group vowed to attempt to outdo Prince on stage. During the time's final performance under Prince, they began playing when eggs started being hurled at them on stage, only to realise it was Prince and his band cheekily throwing the eggs from backstage. When the time walked off stage, furious at Prince and his bandmates, Prince had the Times guitarist Jesse Johnson handcuffed to the mounted coat rack on the wall as a caution of don't mess with us while we go on stage. Prince completed his performance before a food fight erupted backstage. The two bands then headed back to their hotel rooms at the same hotel where the battle continued and their hotel rooms were trashed. Morris Day and the Time were held responsible and ordered to pay for the damages. Despite their disputes, Prince helped the time with their second album before getting to work on his own. Taking inspiration from films would become a popular brainstorming activity for Prince after watching the original film called A Star Is Born, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson during the 70s. Prince had the idea to start a female trio to perform sexy, sensual and erotic material. He hired his girlfriend of one year, Suzanne Moonsey, and close friends, Brenda Bennett and Jamie Shoup, naming the girl group The Hookers. The three ladies would dress in lingerie, sporting different personas and singing about sexual fantasies, with lyrics written predominantly by Prince. The three-piece got to work recording demos, and around this time, Prince attended the AMAs and met Canadian actress and model Denise Matthews, who at the time was the date of Rick James at the award ceremony. Prince loved her charisma and decided she would be a great fit for the hookers. After persuading Denise Matthews to join, Jamie Shute would make way for the actress and model, forming the New Look Trio, where her stage name would become Vanity, and the group's name changed to the Vanity Six ditching the controversial hooker's name. 
Dressed in high heels and lingerie, Vanity Six would go on to have minor hits in the US, the Netherlands and Australia, with songs like He's So Dull, Drive Me Wild and Nasty Girl, which reached number one on the US dance charts. Rumours began circulating that Vanity and Prince were having a romantic relationship while he was still with Suzanne Moonsey, which was in fact the case. From January to August of 1982, Prince returned to the studio to record his fifth studio album. Prince had yet to have a top 10 hit internationally, and this would come in the form of a track called 1999. Written about both the Cold War and the conspiracy theories surrounding the year of 1999, ticking over to 2000. The track 1999 peaked at number 1 on the US dance charts, reached number 2 in Australia, number 4 on the US R&B charts, and number 8 in Belgium. Despite charting disappointingly in the US mainstream chart and in other countries around the world, 1999 was released to the world on a number of occasions leading up to 1985 and would reach number 2 in the UK, number 3 in Ireland, 4 in New Zealand, 8 in Canada and number 12 on the US Billboard Hot 100. The synth pop party track was written during the peak of the Cold War as Prince sheds the light on people's fears of a nuclear war to end the world as we know it. Although Prince never intended the message to be dark, as he stated in an interview in 1999 with Larry King on CNN, we were sitting around watching a special about 1999, and a lot of people were talking about the year and speculating on what was going to happen, and I just found it real ironic how everyone that was around me, whom I thought to be very optimistic people, were dreading those days, and I always knew I'd be cool. I never felt like this was going to be a rough time for me. I knew that there were going to be rough times for the earth because of this system is based on entropy and it's pretty much headed in a certain direction. So I just wanted to write something that gave hope and what I find is people listen to it. And no matter where we are in the world, I always get the same type of response from them. Despite Prince clearing this up, it was easy for people to become scared of the year 1999 as Prince's lyrics depict the fear around at the time. As Prince sings... I was dreaming when I wrote this, forgive me if it goes astray. But when I woke up this morning, could have sworn it was judgment day. The sky was all purple, there were people running everywhere. Trying to run from the destruction, you know I didn't even care. Cause they say 2000, party over, oops, out of time. So tonight I'm gonna party like it's 1999. Prince manages to reassure his audience of the importance of getting on with our lives and enjoying it while we are still here. This track would become one of the first to feature his bandmates Des Dickerson and Lisa Coleman on vocals, singing a number of lines during the verses and prominent backing vocals throughout the track, while backing vocalist Jill Jones would also be given a line or two. It was evident that Prince started to become more comfortable and trusting with his band and willing to include them in more projects. This was further proven when Prince gave his band a name, calling them The Revolution, and crediting them on his album's front cover, although it was written upside down and backwards. When recording this track, Rolling Stone magazine reports that Prince would go all day and all night without sleep, and without eating as he feared it would make him sleepy. Luckily for him, the hard work paid off, and Prince began to build a following around the world. This was aided by the release of a music video for 1999, where Prince is featured dressed in a shiny purple trench coat, with his curly black hair and his Revolution band members featuring throughout. The video would become one of the first to be played on MTV upon its launch, and featured as one of the first black artists after MTV had previously appeared quite racist. 
Prince's video would become a household favourite when released the second time around, appearing on MTV alongside Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson as African-American stars of the time. Phil Collins would later use the song as inspiration to the similar-sounding song, Susudio. From 1982 onwards, Prince would give limited interviews for the rest of the 80s due to his popularity rising and the way the media would treat him. On the 27th of October 1982, Prince released the album 1999, named after the single. The album would become a big hit in the US, peaking at number 9 on the Billboard 200 album chart and number 4 on the R&B album chart, going 4 times platinum and selling over 4 million copies in the States. While also charting at number 6 in Australia, it managed to reach platinum status in both Canada and the UK and went on to sell 7 million copies worldwide. The album was released as a double album and received widespread critical acclaim and would be referred to as both Prince's breakthrough album and one of the best albums of all time. The album would become highly influential on a range of artists throughout the 80s as the synthesizer became more and more popular. It would become the fifth album of his in a row to be produced by himself. But the hits wouldn't stop there with Prince releasing Little Red Corvette on the 9th of February 1983. Little Red Corvette was a mixture of a rock ballad meeting pop. The song depicts Prince and his band finally coming into their own with superb vocals from Prince, an emotive synthesizer, guitar riff and a flowing drum beat. The track would become Prince's biggest hit to date, finally cracking the top 10 on the US Billboard Hot 100 mainstream chart at number 6. It also charted at number 2 in the UK, 5 in Canada, 8 in Australia and 12 in New Zealand while also experiencing success on the US Hot Rock chart coming in at number 4. It would sell just over 1 million copies in the US alone. The success of the single would again be followed by an MTV mega hit of a video for Little Red Corvette. Surpassing the success of the 1999 video, it faced off against Michael Jackson's Billie Jean for top spot on the music video charts and again featured Prince and his band prominently as if they were performing live on stage. It would become the first time in a music video featuring Prince dressed in his iconic purple suit with white cufflinks, portraying his own identity combined with his fashion influences Little Richard, Jimi Hendrix and James Brown. Prince wrote the song in relation to a sexual experience with a woman who was known to sleep around quite a bit. Prince appeared to have feelings for the woman, but she didn't feel the same way. The little red corvette in the song representing the woman in question as he details the fast life she was living leading men on, and sleeping with them before leaving, which is reflective in the line, I guess I should have known, by the way you parked your car sideways, that it wouldn't last. See, you're the kind of person that believes in making out once, love them, and leave them fast. While the line, I guess I must be dumb, because you had a pocket full of horses, Trojan, and some of them used, refers to her having a bunch of used Trojan brand condoms, referring to her sexual activity before he refers to her house and bedroom where she brings all her lovers, as he sings, I guess I should have closed my eyes when you drove me to the place where your horses run free, because I felt a little ill when I saw all the pictures of the jockeys that were there before me. Prince had the idea of the song come to him after a long night of recording and writing, where he happened to fall asleep in Lisa Coleman's pink 1964 Mercury Montclair Marauder, a car Prince had helped his bandmate purchase at an auction three years ago. Prince managed to mask the provocative meaning replacing words that would have otherwise been explicit. 
it showed that Prince had evolved his writing style, an ability to hide the true raw meaning in a wittier but consumer-friendly way, ultimately making him more attractive to radio stations and MTV. Prince would again influence another big-name artist and good friend in Stevie Nicks, as she states the song inspired her to write one of her own personal favourites called Stand Back. Prince would soon leave on tour, as Little Red Corvette in 1999 brought him a noticeable increase in ticket sales, while the showmanship and mysterious persona of the star began to grow. It would become Prince's final tour, performing as a support act and in theatres, upgrading to headlining arenas on his next tour. The tour would go down as one of his best in regards to both vocals and stage performance. He would emulate James Brown's dance moves during the instrumental section of A Little Red Corvette, performing the splits and a number of spins which also featured in the music video. Prince was an incredible dancer and drove women and some men crazy all over the world with his moves. On August 17, 1983, the third single from 1999 called Delirious was released. The fun synth pop hit Delirious managed to reach number 8 on the US Billboard Hot 100, becoming his third hit from the album. The song's lyrics talk about a woman driving Prince crazy, but in a good way, again referring to his sexual satisfaction with the woman featured in the song. The keyboard, the drum machine, synth and bass giving a fun jumping style beat, becoming a crowd favourite. Other notable songs on the album included Automatic, Free, Let's Pretend We're Married, an international lover. Automatic was released as a single to Australians only, but didn't manage to break into the charts. Despite this, the incredibly catchy track incorporates the new wave sound with a funk dance style. The lyrics discuss Prince being in a submissive sexual relationship relating to bondage. This is reflected further in a promotional music video released to dance clubs only that features Prince dressed in a purple suit and wearing a sailor-type hat before being stripped down and tied to a bed. Prince would later change the pace in the track Free, which is a more of a piano-style ballad that speaks about being grateful for what you have and being alive. The new wave funk track Let's Pretend We're Married was also released as the final single from the album, but only managed to reach number 52 in the US, and was written again about his sexual fantasies with a woman named Marsha, the song itself gets quite explicit and most likely is reflective of its performance on the charts and lack of radio airplay. One of the most unlikely of the tracks to achieve critical acclaim on the 1999 album was the slow-paced love song called International Lover, which brought Prince's first Grammy nomination in the category for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. The strong themes regarding Prince's sexual experiences and fantasies are again present as he compares sex to travelling via aeroplane and Prince being the captain of the Seduction 747. Prince once more showing his growth in terms of masking the true meaning of a track to break into the mainstream and this time even being nominated for a Grammy. Following the Prince and the Revolution's latest tour, iconic guitarist Des Dickerson decided to leave the band due to religious reasons being conflicting with the content of Prince's sexualized lyrics much like Gail Chapman, while also looking to pursue a solo career as he was unsatisfied with a three-year deal to stay on with Prince. He revealed that he had us join hands and pray in the dressing room before each show. I began to have moments of, huh? Based on what we're doing on stage, I'm not sure who we're praying to. 
as the iconic bandana wearing Dickerson left the band, Lisa Coleman's good friend and 19 year old guitarist Wendy Mulvoin would join the band in his place. Once again adding to the diversity of the band being a female and entering into a gay relationship with Lisa Coleman. After Prince's biggest rival Michael Jackson had struck gold with the mega hit album Thriller, it was now or never for Prince to strike. Due to a deal struck in the early 80s with his label Warner Brothers, Prince was promised a role in a major film. Due to him being a rising star that had now cemented his spot as a big name globally, it was decided Prince would star in his own semi-autobiographical film, calling it Purple Rain. He would produce a soundtrack for the movie that would go down as one of the best albums of all time and cement himself as a star in the music industry. During 1983, production of the film had begun with Prince acting in the leading role and directed by Albert Magnoli, while also being written by Prince himself and William Blinn. Prince would play the role of a character by the name of the Kid, a clear depiction of himself as a boy from Minneapolis as he rises through the ranks battling his demons to eventual superstardom, overcoming his main rival in the music industry. Prince would enlist his own projects, The Time and Vanity Six, now known as Apollonia Six, to star in the film. Vanity of the Vanity Six, or Denise Matthews, was originally asked, but had left the band after having a falling out until she was replaced by Apollonia Cotero. The time with Prince's good friend Morris Day would also feature as the kid's rival in the film. The film depicted some home truths, but were also exaggerated for effect. The official release date of the film was on the 27th of July, 1984. And the film received mixed reviews but Prince was credited for his acting and the incredible soundtrack that earned him Best Original Song score at the Academy Awards for the track Purple Rain. The film also grossed over $70 million at the box office after only having a budget of $7 million. But before the film was released, the first single from the Purple Rain soundtrack was released on the 16th of May 1984 and would become one of Prince's biggest hits of all time strengthening the interest in the upcoming film. The single was called When Doves Cry and detailed the dark times of Prince's upbringing. The song would soar to number one in the US, Australia and Canada, topping a number of charts in both the States and Canada, while reaching the top five in the UK, Ireland, the Netherlands and New Zealand. The mega hit becoming his first global number one and first number one on the US Billboard Hot 100, where it managed to go three times platinum and sell 3.5 million copies. When Doves Cry was the last song to be finished for the Purple Rain album and featured Prince playing all instruments once again. In what was an unusual first for music in the 80s, Prince removed the bass line from the song as he thought it was too conventional, which gave it a unique and delicate sound. Prince utilised a synthesizer, keyboard and a drum machine for the track instead while looping his own vocals and backing tracks. The song is very tragic and in your face as it opens with the iconic short guitar solo followed by a hard hitting drum beat and of course the repetitive but iconic keyboard notes. Prince got very experimental as he played the synthesizer and keyboard at half speed throughout the track until the end where he sped it back up. The track features many emotive moans and cries that Prince lets out, reflecting the pain and suffering endured while growing up, inflicted upon by his parents. When Doves Cry although was written to adapt to the feature film, it did however resemble many truths to Prince's relationship with his parents, 
although it is difficult to determine how much of the content can be connected truthfully, as Prince would rarely give interviews and open up to strangers. The lyric, How could you just leave me standing, alone in a world so cold, is both a direct and indirect message in relation to his father kicking him out at age 12 and the night he spent crying in a telephone booth. While the line, Maybe I'm just too demanding, maybe I'm just like my father, too bold, maybe you're just like my mother, she's never satisfied, why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. Before Prince's cry in song, beautifully portraying the trauma, heartache and sadness of the situation, which provides links to his parents fighting, leading to their divorce, his father's proud and strict nature, and his mother's selfish and adventurous behaviour. Overall, the song is a masterpiece that would earn him an AMA for Favourite Black Singer and winning the Pazenjop Critics Poll for Best Single of the Year. The music video for When Doves Cry was released under a lot of scrutiny, as the video begins with double doors opening to a flock of white doves fluttering about before Prince appears laying in a bathtub in a large open room, littered with purple flowers on the floor, before he gets out and begins to seductively crawl across the floor. Attempts were made to pull the video off MTV, but it managed to remain due to its popularity. The video is simply great art, as Prince shows his complete vulnerability, both lyrically and on camera. The album Purple Rain was released about a month earlier than the film on the 25th of June, 1984. The album would become his career highlight, becoming one of the greatest albums of all time. It soared to number one in six countries, including Australia, Canada and the US. It also reached number 2 in New Zealand, 3 in Sweden, and reached the top 10 in 6 other countries, including the UK. The album was huge in the US, where it went 13 times platinum, selling over 13 million copies, and spending 24 consecutive weeks at number 1, and 32 weeks inside the top 10, only being knocked down by Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA on the Billboard 200. The album would remain on the Billboard 200 for a mega 122 weeks before dropping off. Prince would become only the third artist to have a number one movie, single and album all at the same time, with Elvis and the Beatles the only others to do so. It also went multi-platinum in Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the UK, selling a massive 25 million copies worldwide. The album was the perfect mix of genre bending, including rock ballads, psychedelic funk, new wave, pop, R&B, and dance. Every track from the album had something to offer. Prince would also realise his dream of breaking down the barriers he set out to destroy, as he had now attracted a multicultural audience and was loved by people of all cultures and backgrounds. Prince had put so much work into this album, and it would all pay off in the end. His sound engineer, Peggy McCreary, recalls that his dedication was unlike anyone she had ever worked with before. He would have all the instruments set up and go from one to the other spontaneously and doing whatever he felt like. She recalls her sessions with him as some of the longest she had ever done and that he was a perfectionist that would only leave the studio so that she could sleep. Prince didn't sleep and didn't stop until the album was complete. Prince would once again write all of his own songs with some input from his bandmates. It would become the first of Prince's albums where he included his band, The Revolution, in the recording process, allowing them to play their own instruments after five straight albums of producing, writing, singing, and playing all the instruments himself. The album cover also features The Revolution next to Prince's name, signalling their importance, 
while capturing an iconic shot of Prince dressed in his purple suit and white cufflinks, straddling his purple Honda-matic motorcycle as smoke rises around him. Purple Rain brought Prince rave reviews and critical acclaim, landing him reviews from Rolling Stone's Kurt Loder, comparing him to Jimi Hendrix for his mix of black and white music and bringing the two together. The Purple Rain album would go on to win a Grammy in the 1985 awards ceremony for best rock vocal performance by a duo or group with vocal and best score soundtrack for visual media for the film Purple Rain. It was also nominated for Album of the Year, losing fairly to rival Lionel Richie with his album Can't Slow Down that was also littered with hits and was fair game with All Night Long, Hello, Penny Lover and Running With The Night. Purple Rain would be inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2010 while also having the honour of being added to the Library of Congress, National Film Registry and their list of sound recordings that display a high level of importance to culture and society in American history. Fellow popular artists Bruce Springsteen, Lionel Richie and John Bon Jovi all spoke highly of Prince's music from the film despite him being their rival at the time. The second single, Let's Go Crazy from the Purple Rain album, would also become a big hit for Prince and was released on the 18th of July 1984. Featuring as the perfect album opener, the fun new wave rock song would peak at number one on the US Billboard Hot 100, spending 24 weeks there and also charting in the top spot on the US Dance Chart and the US R&B Chart, while coming in at number two in Canada, seven in the UK and ten in Australia. The high energy track begins with Prince providing a sermon, like a preacher, where he delivers one of the most iconic opening lines from a song in music history. As an organ plays in the background, he says, Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word life. It means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one. Doctor everything will be alright. Instead of asking him how much of your time is left, Ask him how much of your mind, because in this life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. In this life, you're on your own. And if the elevator tries to bring you down, go crazy, punch a higher floor. Prince screams before the beat kicks in as Prince begins to sing Let's Go Crazy. Prince wrote the song about battling the evil in this world, but enjoying the ride, knowing that we will go to a better place in the end. The song is more of a reference to Prince's spiritual and religious beliefs and his belief in heaven, while the reference to the de-elevator being a metaphor for the devil. In 1997, he was quoted as saying, Let's go crazy was about God and Satan. I had to change those words up. The de-elevator was Satan in the song, and let's go crazy was God to me. Stay happy, stay focused, and you can beat the de-elevator. Interestingly enough, the B-side to Let's Go Crazy would have quite the opposite meaning. The B-side called Erotic City would become a popular tune, being excluded from the Purple Rain album itself. Written in 1983, after Prince had attended a concert performed by Parliament Funkadelic, the track was obviously detailing another of Prince's sexual experiences, but was made famous for Prince wittily sneaking the word fuck into lines and advertising that it said funk, such as funk so pretty you and me, and funk until the dawn. With this alibi, Erotic City enjoyed a fair amount of airplay during the 80s and 90s. The track became a radio hit and featured an interesting method that would become popular in modern music and was influential in Prince's following albums, 
where he would alter the sound of his voice to appear as though there are a number of singers present on the track. Sounding like a deep voiced man, a woman, a high pitched male and a chipmunk backing vocal. Sheila E would also feature with vocals on the track. Erotic City was heavily experimental but worked well to make a catchy dance song featuring string plucking and use of the whammy bar while using a pre-recorded drum beat played backwards, while the bass and keyboard helped to fill out the rest of the song. The song was later altered in 2004 by the Federal Communications Commission to block the use of the word in question and handed out fines to a number of US radio stations who didn't follow this method and broadcasted the original. Sheila E's career with Prince would kick off on this album, featuring on a number of tracks as a backing vocalist, and she was a renowned percussionist. The two had first met for the first time back in 1978, after Prince and Andre Simone saw her perform. He predicted one day she will feature in his band, and also said, We're just fighting about which one of us would be the first to be your husband. She had previously worked and toured with Marvin Gaye, but would come into her own as a musician, under the guidance of Prince becoming a successful solo artist in her own right, releasing eight albums from 1984 to 2017, and having success with the tracks The Glamorous Life, A Love Bazaar featuring Prince, and The Bell of St. Mark. On the 26th of September, 1984, Prince released Purple Rain as his third single from the Purple Rain album. The rock ballad would become a classic and would rise to number two on the US Billboard Hot 100, only being beaten to the punch by Wham!, with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. It charted highly on a number of US charts, while also going to number one in the Netherlands and Belgium. It reached the top 10 in a further eight countries, including Canada and the UK. Australia struggling to get behind the ballad at first, with it only reaching number 41 on their charts, despite becoming a mega hit on radio. Despite this, the track is now held in high regard as one of the greatest rock ballads of all time. Purple Rain is a pure and perfect sounding track that is incredibly moving and emotional. With the original track running over 8 minutes in length, it would be shortened to just over 4 minutes for radio. The 8 minute track however, is simply a masterpiece, as it is full of superb vocals from Prince, amazing guitar riffs, and solos that help you to feel every word that comes out of his mouth, while his screams and cries throughout the song are simply breathtaking. Purple Rain gives listeners a chance to appreciate and understand just how great of a guitarist Prince actually is, as he provides one of the most emotive and touching guitar solos of all time. The song also features a beautiful guitar riff performed by Wendy Melvoin, delicate and distorted notes played on electric grand piano, and a slow drum beat that adds to the dramatic sound and the sad and emotional rhythm of the song, while the female backing vocals create a sense of a church choir. His music video taken from his film Purple Rain would become his most popular of his career. This particular scene is the centerpiece of the film and takes place after Wendy and Lisa had wrote the song in the film and they had got into an argument with him over never using their music. Princess the Kid is seen as shy and intimidated by the audience and perhaps worried about following the time's great performance with an untested song. Prince appears on stage dressed in his iconic purple suit with white cufflinks as he dedicates the song to his father for the film adaptation, as well as directing the verses to different people that had impacted him throughout the film. By the end of the song, the crowd begin to cheer after winning the crowd's approval by the end of the clip. The song Purple Rain was recorded live at a benefit concert for the Minnesota Dance Theatre at the First Avenue Nightclub in Minneapolis on August 3rd, 1983. 
The performance marked the debut of Wendy Melvoin as a new member of the Revolution, and it would go down as one of the best performances the band ever did. The concert was recorded by the brother of drummer Bobby Z, David Rivkin, by using a mobile recording unit. Rivkin was unaware that three of the tracks played at the concert would feature on the official and final mix of the Purple Rain album. Purple Rain, I Would Die For You and Baby I'm A Star were all live recordings, only altered by some overdubbing in the mixing studio. Purple Rain was originally 11 minutes long, featuring an extra verse about money, but was removed from the album as it took away from the emotion of the track. Prince would reveal that his meaning of the song relating to when there is red blood in the sky, it combines with the blue sky to make purple. With Purple Rain signalling the end of the world and your relationship with the one you love and allowing your faith in God to pull you through the Purple Rain. This is referenced in Prince's previous 1983 hit, 1999, where he states the sky was all purple and could have sworn it was Judgment Day. It's believed that before it rains in Minneapolis, the sky sometimes turns a beautiful purple colour. It's alleged one of the women that the song was written about was former Vanity Six member and ex-girlfriend Denise Matthews. Surprisingly, Prince originally wrote the track as a country song to perform with Stevie Nicks. Prince sent Nicks a 10 minute demo copy of the instrumental for the track and offered for her to write the lyrics. Nicks had to listen to it and was instantly overwhelmed and thought that it was just too much for her. Prince then asked his Revolution bearmates one evening if they could run through his new track before heading home. Wendy Melvoin started to play some chords and Prince had the idea to alter the track, taking it away from its original country vibe. Prince and his bandmates got carried away and stayed back a further six hours and had the song almost fully completed in terms of lyrics and arrangement. Despite the film referencing Wendy and Lisa as the writers of the song, Prince had in fact wrote it himself. Prince's religious beliefs were now starting to influence his writing material as he would release the B-side, God, with Purple Rain and appeared to be searching for answers. While on the Purple Rain tour, Prince would play the song at almost every show and attempt to reenact the scene from the movie. After the success of the album to date, Prince would continue on his hot streak when he released I Would Die For You as his fourth single from Purple Rain on the 28th of November 1984. Again the song was written in relation to Prince's religious beliefs and the belief that Jesus Christ died for our sins with lyrics such as I'm not a woman, I'm not a man, I am something that you'll never understand, I'll never beat you, I'll never lie, if you're evil I'll forgive you, I'm not your lover, I'm not your friend, I am something that you'll never comprehend, no need to worry, no need to cry, I'm your messiah and you're the reason why. All I really need to know is that you believe. As the lyrics continue on to discuss how he is not a man, but comes in the form of a dove and brings love. I Would Die For You would reach number 8 on the US mainstream chart and number 7 in the Netherlands and receive considerable airtime on radio worldwide. While it wasn't as successful as his first three hits from the album, it would become a popular fan favourite. Prince utilised both an electric piano and his LM1 drum machine prominently for this track. Only 500 of the machines were made and Prince owned one of them, setting him back $5,000. It was like his baby and he was a master at using it. On the 25th of January 1985, Prince would release his final single, God Take Me With You, from the highly successful album Purple Rain. With the underrated track making it to just number 25 in the US and not experiencing much success elsewhere. 
The psychedelic rock song is sung as a duet with Apollonia 6 singer Apollonia Cotero, with Lisa Coleman filling the vocals when needed. The whole album is full of great tracks, with Computer Blue and Baby I'm a Star being great songs in their own right. Other notable tracks from the album include the relaxing psychedelic pop ballad, The Beautiful Ones. The Beautiful Ones was believed to have been written around the time about Wendy Melvoin's sister Susanna as she was having relationship troubles and the song was penned by Prince to give her hope that she could break away from the relationship. Prince would soon enter a short relationship with Susanna himself. On the 28th of January 1985, We Are The World was recorded by USA for Africa in response to the famine in Ethiopia. The song had been written by Prince's rivals Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson and Prince had been invited but infamously did not show up to the final recording of the track that went ahead the same night as the American Music Awards. Prince was supposed to have sung a line back to Michael Jackson and after he didn't turn up he was pointed out by many musicians including the main organiser Bob Geldof for being a no-show. Geldof labelled Prince a creep and that he had let everybody down. Prince simply was intimidated to be in the same room as so many big names and suffered from severe anxiety around large groups of people and he felt as though he wasn't able to put himself in this situation as it frightened him. Prince was also concerned that the egos in the room would result in some sort of conflict so instead Prince donated a track to the We Are The World album called For The Tears In Your Eyes. The track was an acoustic religious ballad played alongside his revolution bearmates Wendy and Lisa. The song speaks of Jesus, his crucifixion and miracles. But the most controversial of all on the Purple Rain album and perhaps of his career to date would have to be the track Darling Nikki. Darling Nikki has a live feel with its simple guitar plucking rhythm to Prince's echoing voice. The song became infamous for its sexual references with lyrics like I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. It was the song that US politician Tipper Gore had heard her 12-year-old daughter listening to in her bedroom that gave her the idea to initiate the parents' music resource centre. Their aim was to have a warning label stating parental advisory and explicit lyrics on albums deemed to contain inappropriate content unsuitable for those under the age of 15. Gore brought this into Senate where the record labels voluntarily agreed to adhere to their proposition. From then on, the parental advisory label has been used throughout the world. Despite this, Darling Nikki rose up the charts, sparking interest in the song over its lyrics and managed to reach number 9 on the Hot Rock Songs chart in the US and 26 on the digital sales chart in the States also. Prince, although proud of his latest album, he found the success of his film and album overwhelming and scary. He was now being swarmed by media everywhere he went, and critics and fans waited eagerly to see what the newest juggernaut in music had up his sleeve next. Prince wouldn't take to this too well, and would choose to steer clear of many interviewers. Despite this, Prince began to be noticed by big names in a range of industries, and was the centre of attention of a number of portraits by Andy Warhol, who had painted him in 1984. Warhol was inspired by Prince and his creativity and became intrigued by the musician, eventually painting 12 portraits of Prince. Prince wrapped up his highly successful Purple Rain tour on the 7th of April 1985 in Miami at the Miami Orange Bowl, where it was renamed for the show The Purple Bowl. 
Sheila E and Apollonia 6 were his support acts with the time being left out despite their movie appearance as they would soon disband after Prince and Morris Day had a falling out and various members decided they would like to pursue solo careers. Prince performed 98 shows across the US and Canada in front of a stadium and arena sized crowds and sold over 1.7 million tickets. It would become his last tour of North America alone as his international fan base grew. As Prince reached the mountaintop with his triple whammy movie, single and album with Purple Rain, there was no telling what was next for the controversial and creative mastermind that is Prince. As he continued on his journey to superstardom, he would lose himself and also rediscover himself along the way as he would battle for his rights as an artist, experience a number of ups and downs and leave this world as one of the most influential and intriguing artists the industry and the world has ever seen. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed episode 7, part 1, featuring Prince. Make sure you like, share, rate and subscribe, and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, head to Patreon to check out how you can keep the podcast going, and sign up to one of three membership packages, starting at just $1 a month, which includes extra content and bonuses. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned for next week's final episode of the season, which will be part two of The Prince Story. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.